She was uh, five years old, and on this particular Sunday morning, she was sitting next to her father. So when it came time for communion, this little girl watched very carefully. She noticed how her father took that tiny piece of bread, and then he ate it. And then he took that small cup of juice, and then he drank it. And then he bowed his head and prayed. Well, his daughter kept staring at him, wondering to herself, what's this all about? Why is he doing this? She was so curious. So after a few moments of silence, the little girl gently nudged her dad in the side because she wanted to ask a question. But the father didn't respond. His eyes were still closed. It was obvious that he was still thinking about that piece of bread and that cup of juice and what that meant for him. So the little girl waited. When the father finally opened his eyes, she once again nudged him in the side. And this time her dad leaned over and whispered, what, honey? What do you want? And his daughter asked him, what did that do for you? That bread, that cup, what did that do for you? (laughs) That's a great question. How would you answer? Here's one of the ways the Bible would answer that question. It's this scripture that we're going to look at today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. And basically what this scripture is going to tell us is this, that when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we see God. We see God on a cross. Now that's staggering to think about. I mean, immediately I find myself wrestling with a mystery. How could this be? God on a cross? How can he who is absolutely holy now become so intimately involved with that which is so obscene? How can he who is perfect in his goodness now become so tightly intertwined with that which is so bad? I mean, here is humanity at its very worst and divinity at its very best, and they meet together on a cross? The one place that I would think I'd never find God on a cross. And yet there he is. And why? Because in spite of all our cruelty and all our evil and all our sin, he still loves us. Amazing love. How could it be that you, my king, would die for me? Now that's the testimony that we're going to find in this scripture. Here's the Apostle Paul. He is pleading with us. Please don't take your salvation for granted. Please don't take for granted what Jesus has done for us. So twice in the scripture, we're given a command. In fact, it's the first time we're given a command in the book of Ephesians. Twice in three verses, we are told to remember. Verses 11 and 12, remember who you were before you met Jesus. And verse 13, remember who you are now because of Jesus. And what I love about this passage of scripture is the simple way, the very simple way this Bible, the Bible here explains this. It makes me think of that farmer over in China. True story. Way back in 1940, there was this Chinese man who, in his elderly years, he lost his ability to see. So he couldn't work anymore, and life became very tough. And because he lived way up in the mountains, far away from the city, there was no chance of getting to a hospital. So his situation just seemed hopeless. And yet one day, a friend introduced him to a missionary, a missionary who also happened to be a doctor. And so an operation was performed. And now, for the first time in years, the farmer could see again. It was wonderful. But that wasn't the end of the story. About a week later, the missionary saw the Chinese farmer heading his way, and he was holding on to the front end of a long rope with 10 other men behind him, 10 other men who were blind. 
These 10 other men, they knew this Chinese farmer, and they knew how for years he had not been able to see. But then they heard about this change that occurred in his life, and now they wanted to meet the doctor too. Think about this. Here was this Chinese farmer. He could not begin to explain the physiology of the eye. He could not begin to describe the details of all the techniques that were used in the operation that was performed upon him. All he could basically tell his friends was this, I once was blind, but now I can see. Come meet the doctor. Come meet the one who restored my sight. Now, isn't that our testimony as Christians? I mean, let's be honest. Most of us, we're not, we're not teachers. We're not trained theologians. We don't understand all the intricacies of the Bible. We cannot begin to fathom all the mysteries about God. There's so many questions that we don't have answers to. And we are certainly not perfect examples of flawless Christian living. Far from it. But here's what we can offer to others. Come meet the one who changed my life. That's why we ask other people to come to church with us. We want them to meet the doctor the great physician. We want them to meet the one who has touched our hearts and changed our lives with his amazing grace. And that's the testimony we find in this scripture. So if you have a Bible, please open it up and look at this with me. Ephesians chapter 2, and let's begin with verse 11. Therefore, remember. Now keep in mind, the Apostle Paul, as he's speaking these words, he's talking to a particular part of the church, the church here in the city of Ephesus. Here in the church at Ephesus, you have both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But in these three verses, he is addressing his remarks to those of a Gentile background. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, Gentiles, not Jews. Or another way we could describe the difference between these two groups, you who were once called the uncircumcised. And you were called that by those who considered themselves to be the circumcision. That physical act which is done in the body by human hands. What are we talking about? Well, from the time of Abraham on, one of the ways that God wanted his people to be distinguished from other people was through this physical act of circumcision. Even though, even way back there in the time of Abraham, there were many Gentiles who had been circumcised too, yet for the Jewish person, that mark on your body had a significance for you that it didn't have for anybody else. Through that physical act of circumcision, it was a way of saying that even in the most private and intimate areas of my life, I want to honor God. I declare my devotion to God with every part of my body. Now, everything I do with this body, I want to do what is right in his eyes. Now, be careful that you don't misunderstand what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He is not implying that Gentiles are bad and Jews are good. And that, hey, once you become a Christian, now you've got to stop living as a Gentile. He's not asking you to deny your ethnic heritage. He's not making that kind of comparison. What he's emphasizing here is, here in this church at Ephesus, we all came from different kinds of backgrounds, Jewish and Gentile. And for many of you as Gentiles, hey, many of you, you were not raised in a Christian home. You never had a Bible. You never had rabbis to explain to you what the Bible was trying to say. For years, you found yourself living in an environment where all your traditions and customs did not show you the truth about God. You had no hope of a coming Messiah because you'd never even heard of a Messiah. Watch how he elaborates this on, in verse 12. He says, remember that at that time before you met Jesus, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, so you had no access to the benefits that Jesus could share with you because you were not living in a personal relationship with him. And you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were not yet a part of God's people. And you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. 
God enters into this special relationship with his people. God and his people make a covenant with each other. Here is God making a commitment that I will be your God and you will be my people. And in making that commitment, he makes promises to them. Promises of what he's going to do for the present and promises of what he's going to do for their future. But before we met Jesus, we weren't a part of that covenant. And we had no access to those promises. So the result was this. We were without hope and without God in the world. Translation, we were lost. We were lost. What does that mean? Well, way back in the 1800s, there was a a famous writer by the name of Victor Hugo. He lived in France. He wrote all kinds of plays and poems and novels, uh, many of which we still read to this day. Or at the very least, we've watched the musicals based upon those novels, like Les Miserables or The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Well, one day, Victor's sitting in his study, working on a poem, when he hears this tapping sound. He looks over at the window, he sees this little bee just banging itself against the window, trying its best to get outside, trying to get out to that garden full of flowers so it can see outside the house. And then Victor looks down and notices this is not the first bee to try to do something like this. There's a half dozen other bees already dead on the floor that have tried the same strategy. Hey, just keep hitting the glass and maybe eventually you're going to find a way through. Well, the plan never worked. Sooner or later, every one of those bees would run out of energy and drop dead on the floor. And the same thing was about to happen to this bee unless this little guy got some special help. So Victor stood up and he grabbed a napkin and he tried to catch the bee so he'd open the window and set it free. Well, the little bee didn't understand what this big man was trying to do, and so he begins to frantically dart here and there, trying his best to stay away. And for 10 minutes, the chase continues until finally, Victor catches that tiny creature. Now, holding that little bee gently in his napkin, he opens the window and he turns the bee loose. Now at last the bee is free. He's free to fly where he was made to fly in that garden full of flowers. Well, Victor Hugo said for the longest time he just stood there at the window looking at his little friend and as he's watching this, he began to think to himself of the parallels. The parallels between what he just tried to do for that bee and what God tries to do for us. Here was this little bee trapped in a predicament that it didn't begin to understand. I mean, in the worst way, that little bee wanted to be free, and he was doing everything he could to find that freedom, but having no success. And Victor Hugo, from his much better perspective, understood he never will have success. That bee has no chance. No matter how hard it works, no matter how hard it tries, it's never going to get outside on its own. The only way to get outside is with somebody else stepping in to help out. And yet, when Victor tried to intervene, the bee resisted. He kept flying away. In fact, at one point, the little bee tried to sting the the hand of the man who was trying to help it. And yet, if Victor Hugo had not persisted in his efforts to save the bee in spite of what the bee was doing, if he had not persisted in those efforts, that little fellow would have been doomed. He would have wound up like all of his friends, dead on the floor. Now, it's kind of humbling for us to think that we have so much in common with a little honeybee, but we do. Because we are never going to get out of our predicaments, not without the help of the Lord. And here's why. We are sinners, and we cannot. We cannot save ourselves. We're not up to the task, and we never will be. We will never get to where we are supposed to be without the help of God. But God has helped. And look at how. Verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, you have been brought near. That phrase, far, far away, brought near, was used way back in the book of Isaiah. It was used to describe a time when the Jewish people, God's people, were far away from the Lord. They were living in exile. They were living in the land of Babylon, 700 miles away uh, from the promised land. And they were living there because they'd sinned, because they rebelled against God. 
But God in his mercy found a way to bring him home again. And here he is doing the same thing again. Taking those who are far away and bringing them near. And this time he's not just doing it for the Jewish people. This time he's doing it for the Gentiles too. It says, the last part of verse 13, we were brought near by the blood of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever noticed this? How frequently in the Bible, when it talks about the cross or it talks about the death of Jesus, it will use this particular phrase, the blood, the blood of Christ. Now, now why that phrase? Why that expression? Well, you can die without losing blood. Death is not always a violent experience, but it was for Jesus. I mean, when Jesus died, he didn't just simply pass away. He didn't just die of old age in a comfortable bed. He died on a cross. And it was bloody, it was gory, it was ugly, it was revolting. Blood streaming down his body and blood running down the cross. And why? Why all of this physical suffering? Because sin has a physical dimension to it. You and I know that. Just look at our world. Look at all the violent crimes that are being committed. The riots, the wars, the rape, the abuse, all the blood that is being shed. And why? What's the reason behind it? Our sin. The sin in your heart and mine. So to pay the price for that sin, Jesus sacrificed himself in a violent and bloody death on a cross. Now, sin has social dimensions to it, and sin has spiritual dimensions to it, too. And you see all of that on the cross also. But for just this moment, focus upon this one aspect, the blood. Here's another reason for the blood, for the shedding of his blood. When Jesus died, he died at the time of the Passover. Here's this festival where Jewish people from all over the world would now gather in the city of Jerusalem. And they came there to remember. To remember how God once brought them out of Egypt, how he delivered them from the evil of that land. On the tenth and final plague, it was Moses who warned Pharaoh that the firstborn son in every house will die tonight. Except, except in those households where an unblemished lamb is killed. An innocent lamb is allowed to die in our place. But it's not enough that the sacrifice has been made. Now the, sac the benefits of that sacrifice have to be applied. The blood of the lamb was put on the top and the sides of the door. So that way, that night when God came passing through the land, he would see the blood on the door. He would see the sacrifice that had already been made on behalf of everybody that's inside that home, and he would simply pass over. And judgment would not strike that household. So you see what mattered on that night. What really mattered was not the size of the house that you were living in or the beauty of that home. What mattered that night was not how good or bad or how pious or wicked were the people sitting inside that house. No, all that mattered that night was the blood. Is this house covered with blood? Not just any kind of blood, but the blood of the lamb. Because only those who were in that kind of household, only they would be saved. So then you come to the first century. And this Passover, at the very, on the very day when people are coming into the temple there in Jerusalem and seeing all these lambs hanging up there on iron hooks and flayed, now also just outside the city they can see the greatest lamb of all, the lamb of God. Jesus hung on a cross, his body already flayed with a Roman whip, and there he is shedding his blood, so that he can provide us with the ultimate covering. Now we know the judgment for our sin has fallen on him and not on us. Now again, consider what that means for us right now. Just as it was in the first Passover, it's not enough that a sacrifice had been made. The benefits of that sacrifice had to be applied or the people in the house would not be saved. 
Well, so it is with the cross, the death of Jesus. It's not enough that Jesus died, but now the benefits of that sacrifice have to be applied. Where does that happen? Where do we come in contact with the cross? The Apostle Paul answered that question in Romans chapter 6. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, don't you know we weren't just going through some kind of ritual or ceremony? No, no, no. There was so much more going on. At that very moment in time, the moment of baptism, something really important was happening. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? At that moment, the blood of Christ is applied to our lives. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, now that glory can become ours as well as he raises us up and we can begin a new life with Jesus. Let me finish, let me finish this way. Have you ever watched a little girl when she's pretending to be somebody else? Here she is lost in a world of make-believe. She's taken this plastic crown with sparkles on it, and she sets it on top of her head. And as soon as she puts it there, she's not a little girl anymore. She has now become a princess. I mean, immediately, everything about her changes, the way she moves, the way she stands, the way she talks. That little plastic crown sitting on top of her head has transformed her. Why? Because in that moment, she truly believes, now I am somebody special. And so she begins to act like it. She holds her head high. She begins to move around that room with a whole new sense of grace and dignity. She begins to act like royalty. Well, imagine how this little girl is going to feel that day when she meets Jesus. And she discovers for herself, this is no fairy tale. She really is a princess. Because she has been called to be a part of God's royal family. And it's not going to be some cheap toy, some phony piece of plastic sitting on top of her head that brings about this wonderful transformation. No, it was an old rugged cross where the dearest and the best laid down his life for you and for me. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you so much for not giving up on us. Thank you for not treating us as our sins deserve. God, thank you for that gift of life that we find in Jesus. And God, thank you for your grace that made that gift possible. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. A man was sitting by a pond when he accidentally dropped a coin in the water. So he grabbed a stick and he began to poke around trying to separate the coin from the rocks below. But the more he poked around with the stick, the more he stirred up the mud, and the more he stirred up the mud, now the water became so cloudy he couldn't see a thing. So you know what he had to do? He had to pause for a moment. He had to just sit still for a while and wait, wait until the water became clear again. And now he could see the coin. Every Sunday morning when we come to the time of communion, we pause for a moment. Because as we hold that bread and we hold that cup, it is God who begins to make things clear again. It is God showing us 
Here's what really matters. What matters is what Jesus did for us. Because without that sacrifice, we have no hope. So this morning, as we prepare to eat the bread and drink the cup, as we prepare to enter into this special time of fellowship with the Lord, let's pause for a moment. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, please use this moment to make things clear again. God, use this moment to show us what really matters. God, in this moment, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, would you help each one of us to fix our eyes upon Jesus? And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.